Here we are in our series, Everyday Discipleship, and you know our, our text for this series is 1 Corinthians, and so we're going to look at these few verses that we read together today, and let me remind you, I've mentioned before how relevant and applicable this letter to the Corinthians is to us today living in the 21st century. And one of the reasons that is the case is because the world has become once again pagan. So the gospel went into a thoroughly pagan world. The only people in the world that believed in the one true God was Israel the Jewish people. Everybody else were pagans. They were idolaters. They believed in multitudes of gods and so forth. And the gospel came into the world in the first century and permeated throughout the world many cultures and turned the world from a pagan, much of the world, not all of it, but turned much of the world from a pagan world to a world that was under the influence of the one true God. But now as time has passed, the world, especially the West, is rapidly returning to the way it was before the gospel entered it and brought God's standards of righteousness to bear upon how people live. And so as sin overflows in the culture, it inevitably makes its way into the church. That's what was happening in Corinth, and that's what is happening in the church today. And we've seen this over and over and over again. Uh, it, it, it often starts with the leadership in the church compromising and then it trickles down to the, the, the congregational level where sin just is welcomed in and it is allowed. This was happening in Corinth. This is what Paul is pushing back strongly against here. But like I said, this is happening today. I just read this article this morning. Let me read it to you. It comes out of the UK. Uh, the Archbishop, here's the, here's the headline. The Archbishop of Canterbury and York, the Archbishops, plural, there's two of them, uh, unwilling to support school chaplain suspended for defending traditional views on LGBT during a sermon. So that, that's the heading. So here's what the article says. The Archbishops of Canterbury and York are facing criticism after it emerged that neither is willing to support the school chaplain who was suspended and reported to an anti-terrorism program for questioning his school's new LGBT policies. Reverend Dr. Bernard Randall was made redundant, that means he was fired, from Trent College a, listen to this, Church of England school near Nottingham 
after he gave a talk, so he was fired, after he gave a talk encouraging pupils to question the school's LGBT policies, arguing everyone has the right to hold traditional views on marriage, sexuality, and gender. So that was his position. You don't have to go with the, this new policy. Now, the most reverend Justin Welby, he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and the most reverend Stephen Cottrell, he is the uh, Archbishop of York, uh, are said to have declined publicly supporting Reverend Dr. Randall after Christian Concern, this is a, a legal uh, group, who is representing the chaplain, urged them to do so. So they declined to do this as, as after they were asked to. The Bishop of Derby, uh, Right Reverend Libby Lane, was also asked to come out in support of the Reverend Dr. Randall, but denied the request. Andrea Williams, CEO of Christian Concern, told the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail is a UK newspaper, uh, it is incredibly disappointing, but sadly not surprising that the leadership of the Church of England have failed to speak up in support of Dr. Randall. Where is Justin Welby on this issue? So this is today. This is, this is happening right now. So in case you missed anything, so here's what you have. You have a Church of England college. So it's a college that is actually run by the Church of England who has now implemented a pro-LGBT program uh, or ethos into their school. You have a Church of England um, professor or chaplain in this case, who says, basically stands up for the biblical position and gets fired by the school, gets reported to anti-terrorism group, that was thrown out immediately, but nevertheless they reported him. And then you've got the two heads of the Anglican church refusing to weigh in and to give him any support. That is what we're talking about. And that's not just happening in Britain. That's happening all over the world, particularly all over the Western world. And the reason this happens, as I said, is because the church compromises. And it be, the compromise begins in the leadership always. And then it makes its way down to the people. So the strong warnings Paul gave to them then in Corinth, we can see are relevant to us today. So let's just catch up to where we're at. Paul having sternly rebuked them for, number one, their, uh, what he called fleshly behavior, their fleshly behavior seen in their tolerance of sexual immorality. We saw that in the fifth chapter. Sexual immorality, a kind of sexual immorality that even the pagans wouldn't allow for. So he rebuked them for that. Then he's just been rebuking them for their swindling and suing one another, Paul now asks, do you not know 
that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So now he's just gonna get really firm with them. This behavior that you're engaging in, this is the kind of behavior that is wrong. And those who persist in this type of behavior, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. To paraphrase, Paul is asking, how is it that you who call yourselves the people of God think that you can go on living sinful, selfish lives and still inherit the kingdom of God? He tells them that they can't. He tells them that that idea is a deception. It's a huge deception that's come upon the minds of of these Corinthians. And there's a huge deception that's come upon the minds of some in the church today. So now he goes on to state when he's, when he says that the wrongdoers or the unrighteous, most translations except uh, the NIV and the NLT use unrighteous, but the idea is the same. Um, The unrighteous, who is he talking about? And so he says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this this list is is not an exhaustive list of um, unrighteousness. This is one of two other similar lists that Paul spells out in his writings. So, when Paul wrote to the Galatians in the fifth chapter, the 19th through the 21st verse, he said something similar. Let me read it to you. He said, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's saying essentially the same thing. He just adds some to the list. Then he goes on and he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Now, one more occasion, Paul gives a similar word. Now, in each one of these, he he says, do not be deceived. So Paul understands that this can be very deceptive. And this, this is what's happening today. People are being deceived. Deceived into thinking that it doesn't really matter how one lives because after all, God is love and God loves everybody and it's not about my behavior per se in in whatever 
uh, area I might be considering. But, but it's really just about God's love, and I believe in God, a God of love, so uh, everything's going to be okay. Now, the third time he says this in writing to the Ephesians, in the fifth chapter, the third uh, through the sixth verse, he says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed or obscenity. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. So this, I'm pointing out these other passages for two reasons. Number one, to show you that this isn't an isolated thing. This is the New Testament. This is the New Testament uh, standard of ethics. This is how God calls his people to live. And these are the things that God calls his people uh, away from. So... That's the first reason. The second reason why I'm pointing this out to you, I forgot. So um, <laughs> maybe I'll remember and then I'll tell you what that was. But, but let's, what I want to do now is I want to look at, you know, just walk through the rest of the text. I, I'm not going to spend the time to go into detail on the things that are mentioned here. Sexual immorality, they're, they're pretty self-explanatory, right? Um, next week... So we're, so we're in a, uh, a portion of scripture here where we're going to be addressing a, a number of these different things that are talked about. But next week takes us right into the very issue of sexual behavior. That's the, that's the text for next week. So we'll, we'll dive more deeply into that. Like I said, all of these descriptions are pretty self-explanatory. So there's no need to walk through each one and describe what it is. Um, if you have any um, confusion about what any of these words mean, then just when you go home, grab a dictionary and look them up. That can be very helpful, seriously. So but what I want to do is I want to look at a few things. I want to look at um, just this, the idea of wrongdoing. Because, of course, people today would say, well, that's not wrong. So the question is, who says what's right or wrong? Now, we live in a time where it seems that whatever the majority thinks, that becomes the rule of the day. So since most people think that there's no problem with a lot of these things, I mean, you know, take... Um, a premarital sexual relations today. I mean, you go out in the world and you, you take a survey. How many people are you going to find that actually think that's wrong? I mean, most people today just assume that, well, we, of course you can have sex before you get married. I mean, how, how would you even know if you're sexually compatible with the person you're going to marry unless you had sex before? That's the reasoning today. So the majority of people in the culture pretty much would say that it's, it's not wrong to have sex. 
And because the majority say it, then that seems to be, well, that settles it. But that doesn't settle it because it's not, it's not the majority that sets the standard for right and wrong. We believe, as I'm speaking as a Christian, we believe that, that God sets a standard, but, but that's where the battle lies. The battle lies right there because the atheist, the humanist, the Marxist, all say that man is the measure. Man is the measure. Man alone determines right and wrong. Marx said this. He said the consciousness of man is the supreme divinity. Arthur Briggs, a humanist, said, a humanist is one who believes that man is the center of the universe. Another humanist, J.A. Auer of Harvard, amplified that definition. This is what he said. He said, man would worship God if man felt that he could admire God. But if not, if God fell below the level of moral excellence which he, man, has set up, he would refuse to worship him. That is humanism. According to our, man is the measure of all things. That is the philosophy that we live right in the midst of today. And that thinking is making its way into the church. Man is the measure. Now, it, it used to be that man and his mind, man and reason, that was the, the, going to be the new rule. But we've, we've even gone beyond that now. Reason is no longer king. What is king now? King now is feeling. So you can look at something and it's reasonably incorrect. But if you feel like it's a certain way, then, then that's what it is. So we, we've gone beyond reason. I mean, reason was a big enough problem, thinking that man could just reason himself into goodness and so forth, which obviously never happened. But, but now we move beyond reason to, to feeling. So... What is it? Who says what is right or wrong? The Bible says God is the one who tells us what is right and what is wrong. I mean, after all, even the things that we intuitively think are right and wrong, where did they come from? Who said you shall not murder or steal or lie or envy or commit adultery? Who said that? Guess what? God said that. These are not the, these are not the rules that human beings came up with. Wherever you find these in a culture, like in our culture, some of them are still embedded in our culture, guess where they came from? They came from the influence of God's word the, through the Christian faith. That's how they came into being in the culture. And so everyone knows intuitively that 
to murder is wrong, to steal is wrong, to lie is wrong, to envy is wrong, and, and so forth. We know that intuitively, and we also know that by observation. We can see the pain, the hurt, the damage, the misery, the suffering that these things cause when they are participated in. And the only ones who don't see that, I think truly are people who have been brainwashed. Now, of course, the secular world would look at us and say, well, these poor Christians have been brainwashed. Well, we look at them and say the same thing. You know, I, I've often heard this argument like, how come all the educated people in the world, you know, how can they all understand that, that you know, these, th these things are good and right and so forth, and it's just the uneducated people that don't get it? Well, the answer is simple. The educated people have been brainwashed. They've sat in classrooms under people with these ideas who have uh, imposed them on them and they've been intimidated into believing them because after all, this PhD person says that this is the way it ought to be. And if I disagree with that and everybody around me agrees with that, I'm gonna look stupid, I'm gonna be foolish, so I better just get in line. So everybody believes the same thing because nobody wants to think for themselves. They call themselves free thinkers, but the fact of the matter is they're not thinking at all. That's what is happening in our culture. So, wrongdoing, Paul calls them wrongdoers, or again, the translation, the unrighteous. Doing what is wrong. God's the one who determines what is right and wrong. Now, what does he say? He says that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what, is it, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? Well, I think it can have two applications and the, the obvious one is speaking about the kingdom of God in the future, speaking about the fact that um, after we die, there is a judgment, and that judgment will determine where we spend eternity. Those who live like this will not be with God in his eternal kingdom. That's the obvious. But there's another I think, application as well. Because as we talked about before, the kingdom of God is present now. And the present description of the kingdom of God was given by Paul in Romans, where he said, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so, think about it. Paul's speaking to people who are believers, they claim to believe in Jesus. But they're living contrary to what God has clearly called them to. And so in, in the sense of how we just described the kingdom of God, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, living like this, they're never going to, they'll never inherit the kingdom. They'll never experience that righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit as long as they're living like that. 
And you know, this is the state of some Christians. Some Christians, they, they want the, the righteousness, the, the peace, the joy of the Holy Spirit, but they don't make the connection be, between their unrighteous living, their wrongdoing, and their lack of righteousness, peace, and joy. Cheryl and I were just talking about this yesterday where some years ago she was reminding me of a situation where she was praying with somebody and she was praying for them to, praying for a group of, of women to be uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and empower them and bless them and fill them. And as she was praying for one person, it was just like there was some block. It was obvious that, that something was holding back that blessing of the Spirit. And so she finally said to the person, is, is there any sin in your life that you, that you need to confess? And she said, suddenly she just started kind of like vomiting out all of these things. So the point is, she was there. She wanted the blessing of the kingdom. I want the righteousness, the peace, the joy of the Holy Spirit, but... I don't want to change the way I'm living over here. You know, and it made me think how I think a lot of people think that way today. A lot of people think that, well, I'm just going to go to the church and they'll pray for me and then I'll get the blessing of God, but I don't need to deal with this stuff going on in my life. No, this stuff going on in your life will prevent you from inheriting the kingdom in this sense. Now, the unrighteous, what is he talking about? I mean, as, as we look at those lists, especially if you remember back in the list there um, in Galatians, let, let me just remind you of that really quickly. So look at the things he lists here. He lists, uh, well, sexual immorality, you know, there's, there's kind of the big ones, the obvious ones. Um, Immorality, debauchery, witchcraft, um, murder, things like that. We're like, well, you know, God, God forbid, I'd never would do any of that stuff. But then there's also impurity in here. And there's hatred, and there's discord, and there's jealousy, and there's fits of rage, and selfish ambition, and, and factions, and envy. It's like, wow. Dang. <laughs> Listen, we're, we're all in here somewhere. We're all in here somewhere. But, but and, it, and it's there, remember, that, that Paul says that those who live this way, those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom. So, so what does he mean by that? Well, Again, it's important to understand. He's talking about those who live this way. This is their way of life. Those for whom these behaviors are normal. Those, the New King James Version reads, those who practice such things. The NIV, as we saw, reads, they that live this way. So Paul is talking about lifestyle. He's talking about this is the way 
people are living. He's talking about those who refuse to turn to Christ and away from sin and evil. Also, those who claim to believe in Christ but insist on living contrary to how God has told us to live in his word. So that's what he's describing, the unrighteous. He's not, let me just clarify this. He is not talking about those who struggle and battle against sin at times and at times fail. That is a, that's an experience that all of us have. We struggle with sin. We battle with it. And sometimes sin gets the upper hand on us. But when that happens, we're convicted of sin. We're sorry for our sin. We want to be free from our sin. You see, that's a, that's a different person than the one that he's describing here as the unrighteous. Because the unrighteous is the person who basically just says, you know, this is just the way I'm going to live. And I'm not going to pay attention to God's rule on this. I don't, I don't really care to conform to what God has to say about this. Actually, I don't think God's word really means that. There's a whole bunch of people in the culture today that's basically their position. Well, I don't think the Bible really says that. I, I think that we've been misinterpreting that, or I think that... Uh, you know, Paul was a, a victim or the apostles, they were a victim of their own culture and their own time. And they thought things were wrong at that time that we know today that those things aren't really a problem. And so praise the Lord. I'm not going to submit to that stuff. That's the praise the Lord is the I'm okay with God. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about that person. Not, again, those who are struggling, those who are battling, those who, those who know that this behavior is wrong and yet they're weak and they succumb to it. Um, many heirs of the kingdom battle with these things. But that's the point. They battle. They struggle. They fight against it. They don't just embrace it and say that, well, this is just who I am. This is the way God made me. So this is how I'm going to live. So <clears throat> the unrighteous are, you could, you could also define them as the rebellious. The ones who just flat out are in rebellion against what God has said. Now here's the thing. <clears throat> Paul says to them, after this list, he says, some of you were just like this. Or, such were some of you. Such were some of you. This, this little word reminds us of this important point. The gospel is for sinners. The gospel is for sinners. All sinners. And we can't forget that. 
Because again, you look at that list. Like I said, it's not thorough, but if you want to, if you want to take the the passages in Galatians, and if you want to take those in Ephesians, and you want to put it all together, and if you want to take Romans chapter one, for example, and you want to put all of that together, you could say the same thing about every one of those things. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But. So, we can never forget. The gospel is for sinners. There have been times in the church's history where that has been forgotten. Times where the idea was that the church was for good and respectable people. That wasn't all that long ago that those ideas were prevalent. As a matter of fact, in certain places, you could still find that that is, that, that's kind of the idea in the background. There's like an unspoken motto over the church, sinners need not apply. How did, how did things ever get to that point? Well, that, they got to that point through another unrighteous act called self-righteousness. But those are, those are real things. And we cannot forget that the New Testament church, the church as God intends it to be, is a church that is filled with grace. It is a church that's about the good news, the gospel, that Christ came to save sinners. So, so now, though, in the context to the Corinthians, he's reminding them, this is what you were. This is, this is your past. Now, they're behaving much like they were behaving previously. It's almost implied that they had had a season of experiencing being freed from those things, but now they're flirting with them again. Now they're dabbling in them again. But you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified. The goal of the gospel is transformation. God is in the business of changing, not just our destiny, not just our eternal destiny, but God's in the business of changing the way we think and the way we behave. That's what he's doing. And so Paul says to them, you, you were these things before, but the point is, you're not that anymore. So quit behaving that way. You're not being true to your real identity. So look at what he says, but you were washed. You were cleaned from the filth of sin. You know, again, we're living in a time where sin is just so the air we breathe, it's like the filthiness of it has, has even lost its sense of filthiness. Boy, the things that, you know, the things that people say and do and act out today and, and, and you know, the truth of the matter is, even though we have become desensitized 
largely to the filthiness, the, the filthiness leaves a stain. And people still know it. People still feel filthy when they're in sin. But what the gospel does is it washes that away. It washes that. It takes away the filthiness. It gives you a sense that I'm clean. I'm clean now. So you've been washed. You've been sanctified. Now, sanctified is a word that is describing the process of growing in holiness, or I like to simplify it by saying it is the process of being made into the image of Jesus. So you've been sanctified. Now, sanctified is an ongoing thing. It's not, you will be fully sanctified when you receive your glorified body. That's when sanctification will be completed. We will be fully conformed to the image of God's son then. But now we've been set on a trajectory toward wholeness, holiness, and Christ-likeness. See, that's what, that's what sanctification is. We've been set on this course toward wholeness, wholeness, health. Not, not physical health, necessarily. Could be physical health because through your sanctification, you're no longer doing the things that were even destroying you physically. But it, it's wholeness in the sense of wholesomeness. God wants our lives to be wholesome, good, not contaminated, not filth-ridden, but, but clean and wholesome. So we've been set on this trajectory toward wholeness or wholesomeness holiness and Christ-likeness. And I think holiness is largely for the Christian. It's Christ-likeness. It's being more like Jesus. And then thirdly, he says, you've been justified. <clears throat> you've been justified. And here's the one that's really important. They're all important, but this one is important because to be justified means to be declared righteous and to be given a positional righteousness before you attain the practical righteousness. And, and this is every Christian. Every Christian is justified. Every Christian is perfect before God. That's justification. But every Christian is also imperfect before one another. So our position is one of perfection. We have been declared righteous now and forever. God sees that. That's how he sees you. That's how he sees me. But when I look at you, when you look at me, we don't see that. What we see is sanctification. We see that we're on this trajectory toward where we're ultimately going to 
land, but justification is the guarantee that we will get there. That's the beauty. Justification guarantees that we will get there. God declares us righteous now because he knows he's gonna get us to the place in the end. And so that's what he says to them. And he says that they have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is just that reminder that these things happen to us as God works in our lives. This is where God is taking us. So for them and for any of us that are in the same situation of stuck in the cycle of wrongdoing, Paul is reminding us that the work of Christ and his spirit is to bring us out of these things. So Paul is reminding them that if they have truly believed then they must renounce and forsake their wrongdoing and allow God's power to perform his transforming work so that they themselves might live as a new humanity created in Christ. Remember, that's what God is aiming for with the church. That he would be able to put us on display as this is a new humanity. This is the new thing. This is what I am doing that will stretch into eternity. So that the world may see and be drawn into the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit presently and be given the guarantee of the full inheritance of the kingdom when Christ returns. So I'm gonna close with this. God loves us, absolutely. But listen, don't think that God's love equals approval. God loves you deeply. He might totally disapprove of what you're doing. He still loves you. But he's told us already what he disapproves of. So let's not confuse his love with his approval. God loves us so much that he will not allow us to remain in our sinful, harmful, painful, destructive ways of living. He loves us too much for that. So he won't allow us to do that. He's come that we may have life and that we may have it to its fullest. Those are the words of Jesus in John 10. I have come to give them life and life more abundantly or life to its fullest. And so living in these unrighteous habits is far from life to its fullest. And if we just insist on remaining there, then that's an indicator that we, we've never really had that work of the Spirit in our lives because through the work of the Spirit, we've been washed and sanctified and justified. 
But if we've been washed, sanctified, and justified, that being through Christ and the power of the Spirit will move us in the direction of living wholesome lives, living good lives, living the kind of lives that we can get up in the morning and be excited about the day ahead or we can go to bed at night and not have any regrets because I'm living the way God wants me to live, the way God intended me to live. And so, Lord, help us to realize the beauty, really, of the life of the Spirit, the beauty that it brings into our own life experience and into the relationships that we have with others, into our entire community. Lord, what an idea to just be able to live wholesomely. Not in a 1950s way, but in the biblical way. And thank you, Lord, that having washed us and sanctified us and justified us, that through the power of your spirit, you enable us to experience that. And I would just pray today, Lord, if there's, if there's anyone among us that is in that place of just living in a state of unrighteousness, Lord, may you call them out of that. May they respond. And Lord, for those who are struggling, those who are battling, Lord, you provide us the victory. Help them, Lord, to know that as they seek you, as they yield to you, as they turn away, you will give them the grace and power to do so. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone joining us today that doesn't know the Savior, anyone whose life is a mess because of sin, Lord, that they would know today that you love them and you want to change them. And you will change them as they come to you. So draw them to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name.